And he must have a firm grasp of the unchanging message so that he can be counted on both for giving encouragement in sound doctrine and for refuting those who argue against it. WSFI 88.5 FM presents Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Well, good morning. It's first Friday in the seventh month of the year, and it's 8 o'clock Central Time, so that means it's time for our monthly show with Kyle Clement, Reclamation Theology. Loyal to the Magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, Clement has been involved in the curriculum, consultation, and formation of priests and laity relating to Catholic liberation and exorcism for over 15 years. A member of the religious association Societas Matres Dolorissime, he, with Father Chad Ripperger, his superior, uh, formed a group called the Liber Cristo Organization, where he provides instruction, evaluation, case investigation, consultation, and formation for bishops, exorcists, dioceses, and religious institutes in the United States and abroad, including the establishment of materials and protocols for many dioceses. So, um, Kyle, you've been um, the host of many conferences at WSFI, and you're branching out. Your ministry is growing by leaps and bounds, and now I guess you have uh, Jesse Romero as part of your um, cater of people that you are evangelizing with and teaching us about spiritual warfare. Also on the line is Miriam Harold, who is the founder of, um, is it Queen of Peace, Miriam? Queen of Peace Radio? That's per- not right. Queen perpetual of Perpetual Help. Queen of Perpetual, it's Queen of Perpetual yeah. Help, is that right? QPH, QPH in yeah. Massachusetts, who's also my sister. So sometimes people get confused with the voices. They can't tell which one of us is speaking. So That's wonderful, Angela, yes. <laughs> if it's something holy and it's proper, that's probably Marianne speaking. Anyway, welcome, Kyle. Welcome to the show this month. Good morning. It's good to be with you both. It's good to be with the WSFI listeners and those beyond. It's, well, it's great to have you. So, Kyle, what will we talk about today? Today we're going to go um, a little bit further into reclamation theology. I encourage you, if you're new to this show, I encourage you to um, access the previous shows. Um, Our goal this year was to do um, 12 First Fridays, and so we have done seven of those. Today will be the seventh, Um, and so you can go back and access those podcasts on the WSFI archive also suggest that if you're interested in this particular topic and subject matter as well as several talks by others on spiritual warfare from a traditional catholic standpoint um, you might uh, consider visiting www.liberchristo.org that's www.l-i-b-e-r-c-h-r-i-s-t-o.org and exhaust all of the free uh, things that are on that site, the frequently asked questions, the videos, those things. And so having made that shameless plug for Libra Cristo, um, and I'll make more shameless plugs throughout the show, let's talk about your question, what are we gonna talk about today? There are three main topics that I wanted to discuss today, and I think because we are all discussing the church, uh, the actions of churchmen, the actions of politicians and all of those things. I think that two things, we need to do that, number one, in a charitable and constructive light. And number two, we need to do it with an eye toward history, toward scripture, toward that what which has gone before, because if we do not, 
Uh, if we do not speak with charity, if we do not speak in a, in a way to correct, um, then we have a spiritual issue. We have a spiritual, uh, our conversation is without merit. And if we do the second, um, then what happens is that uh, we lose the temporal foundation. We, we lose the moorings, the moral moorings uh, that are required. And so a lot of people will say, um, well, I'm just going to play the devil's advocate. And so they begin to, to criticize without solution. And so that is, they're exactly right. They are speaking as if they were the devil, Lucifer, the accuser who offers nothing positive, nothing redemptive, nothing salvific, and simply points out all the defects. Watch and guard against this speech. So it's going to be the first part we're going to talk about how we get there and then some some terms that help us navigate this howling wasteland of relativism and moralism that our modern church hierarchy has led us into. So we as lost sheep, as a, as a group, as a flock of lost sheep, must cling to the absolute truths and the things that we know from faith, from 19 centuries of uninterrupted tradition uh, of our faith and definition of our faith to guide ourselves out of this howling wasteland. The next one is the right order of the faculties, as St. Thomas Aquinas talks about, most specifically the, the willingness to suffer. This is, a, this is another topic that, that we really want to reclaim. And then the third one is the formal enemies of the church and how they act, how they uh, work. And to understand a concept that the demon has a learning curve, um, meaning that what he tried before and failed, he will try again. Um, that's it. That's in his fallen nature. Is he will try again to subvert salvation relationship with God, and so how he does that institutionally is very interesting. He gets better at it each century, and we get worse at resisting each century as we become more focused on on creature to the exclusion of of our focus, which should be on Creator. So there's the flyover. Um, that's an answer to your question. What will we discuss today? Well, thank you, Kyle. So let's let's get right into it. Would you like to address each of those topics in that order? Yes, I think so. And you might help um, you might help keep me on track. I uh, <laughs> I have a, a I will chase rabbits from time to time. Uh, if you understand the analogy, I get distracted and off track and. So let's talk about this first one. And the best way to, to look at this or, or the clearest way, I want to always talk about clarity of vision. Now, there's a, there's a misunderstanding or a, a, a general misunderstanding of our relationship with, to God in that the idea that we are owed something is a Luciferian concept, any concept of entitlement. Uh, of deserving. This is Luciferian at its heart. Um, what is the other side of that is the understanding that every breath is gift. Every day is gift. God Almighty gives us life. God Almighty gives us everything. Um, everything that traditionally we understood this, we prayed this way, every day started with Thanksgiving and it was the understanding that as we journey through this valley of tears, just to quote the Salve Regina, through this hoc lacrimarum vale, we have Christ and his blessed mother. And 
we we have God's grace. Saint Paul, I I prayed three times that the thorn be removed from my flesh. God's answer, my grace is sufficient. And so, the foundation of of as we go through here, uh, the idea that that there should be no suffering, there should be no adversity, is counter to Catholic understanding. In the Roman Missal, the discussion of prayer begins with prayer is a battle. Listen to that. Prayer is a battle. Relationship with God is a battle. Why is it a battle? Is because of original sin. Now, this is this is part of the topic. Is that there is a strong movement among the hierarchy in the church and among churchmen, and it's actively being pumped into seminarians. It's a deformation. Is this understanding of generational sin, and the movement of generational sin from the garden to right now um and and so original sin moves all through all of history um and this there is a very strong movement within um scholastics within theological uh, modern theology which wants to discount this understanding of generational sin in fact um, they, there are those out there who are, are publishing papers, two most recently out of Rome, and our, the hierarchy in the Vatican is promoting this concept that there's no such thing as generational sin, um, a sin that would follow or, or a disposition to sin that follows one's bloodline or familial construct. In the exorcism area, we, we see this over and over. Father's got several excellent teachings on it. And so one of the things about exorcism is it's functional theology. The demon will either yield or he won't. He won't debate with you. He won't negotiate with you. He'll either yield or he won't. And he only yields to truth. And so this understanding that uh, whatever you're experiencing is yours and yours alone, this is an incomplete understanding. But it, it as we walk around this first topic, I want to, to bring us another 90 degrees around and another view of this topic, which is the inversion of, of the spiritual works of mercy, subjecting them to the corporal works of mercy. And I, that's the catchphrase that I would like for you to, one of the catchphrases that I would really like for you to start looking at in um, incorporating in your conversation and the way you look at things. Kyle, before we get started into that, maybe just do a quick explanation for people who are new to the Catholic faith or need a refresher course on what the spiritual acts of mercy are versus the corporal acts of mercy. Okay, when you go back and you look at historically this teaching, the spiritual works of mercy are those things which inure to our salvation. That, that address the eternal construct, our eternal soul, and the disposition of our eternal soul, our relationship with God the Father, that eternal aspect, that everlasting aspect of, of the human existence. The corporal works are those things which address us temporally, feeding, clothing, burial of the dead, those things. And so just to focus on those, and, and I'm not going to give them to you because I want you to go find them. Because when <laughs> okay. you find the first, I'm going to give you the first three spiritual works because that's the that's the most important. The first three spiritual works, and they're as Saint Thomas says, they're ranked 
logically, orderly, rationally, and so there is a primacy. There is an, an obligation not to skip to the third. You have to do one, two, three, four, and work down the list. And so the first spiritual work of mer- uh, works of mercy is to instruct the ignorant. What does ignorant mean? It's not an insult. It simply means not knowing. I am ignorant of the Chinese language. It doesn't mean I'm incapable of learning it. What it means is I do not know it. Stupidity, on the other hand, is a term that is very, very functional, not the slang used, but stupidity is an inability to learn. And so um, the, the cow, for instance, is stupid with regard to spoken language, human language, because um, it, it lacks the quality, the intellectual cat capacity to do that. And so, or it may, it, it may lack the physical attribute necessary to form the speech. So words mean things. Um, and so stupid is incapable of learning or, or being corrected. Um, the old redneck saying is you can't fix stupid. <laughs> well, that's the phraseology of St. Thomas, which is actually exactly right. However, because of our rational quality, it's going to be very difficult to find a stupid human. And so this is an animal or brute attribute that exists lower in the faculties or defect that's lower in the faculties. The point that I'm making is that to instruct the ignorant means that you instruct someone who does not know something. Then the second one is to counsel the doubtful. To counsel the doubtful. So once the ignorance has been addressed, now counseling the doubtful comes to an an issue of belief. And the word believe doesn't mean that, well, I agree with the concept. It means that I'm going to order my life to it. I believe. This is why when we stand and profess the Nicene Creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. You're making a declarative statement that says, I'm ordering my life to this intellectual absolute truth. So when you st- stand in the in mass and recite the Nicene Creed, and then you go promptly and act against that creed, now you've come to the attention of the diabolical because you're duplicitous. So the second spiritual work of mercy is to counsel the doubtful, meaning to address the heresies, the misbeliefs, the falsehoods, um, and, and they may be, and, and usually they're wrapped in an emotional wrapper that sounds very, very good. Uh, for instance, for the person who has lost their virginity uh, through sin or they've, they've done something, they've sinned in such a way as they've descended into um, a morass, a moral morass, God rejoices at the return of the sinner. However, when you add the next statement, which is it's better to have regained, uh, better that a sinner return than someone preserve their purity, that's not a theologically correct statement. So now you're on the edge, now you're on the edge of heresy, which is that which is inconsistent with doctrine. Purity, virginity, has always had a a spot of primacy over the one who lost it and then returned. Um, You go to the disposition, though, it is now you go to the prodigal. 
what is missing in the prodigal is what is missing in the, another parable that Jesus has. The, uh, in the prodigal, you've got two sons. Remember, you've got two sons. You've got one who stays home and does everything, but his heart is closed and obstinate. You've got another who leaves in waste and then comes back. And so what's missing is the third son, the third son who does what his father says out of love for the father. That's what's missing. In the same context, Jesus has another parable where he talks about one son tells his father he'll go work and doesn't. One father says, one son says, I won't work, and then he has a change of heart and does work. What's missing poignantly is the third son who does what he says, who says, yes, father, if you want me to work, I'll work. I want what you want. And so in both of these parables, what's missing is the third son who does what he says, who has a reconciled relationship with God the Father. So by their absence, Jesus is illustrating the absence in us of this docility, of this desire to please. And so that's in the counseling of the doubtful. And so then the third is to admonish the sinner. You may admonish the sinner only after you've instructed and cured his ignorance, then you've counseled his doubt, bringing him back into right relationship, and then you can point out this behavior, this thought that leads to this behavior separates you from God, therefore separating you from grace, placing your soul in jeopardy. This is a spiritual work of mercy. So you see how they work in concert. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and I was not... I never looked at it that way, that actually the third, you, you can't admonish a sinner until the first thing is you've instructed him, and second of all, you've pointed out where he's off or she's off, including ourselves, and then the third one is that. I did not realize that. So continue, Kyle. What's Are you going to cover the, the rest of them, or do you want to move to corporal? I want to go to corporal now because essentially what it, what it amounts to is the mantra of the modern young person is, I didn't know. This is, the, this is their mantra. Incidentally, pagans and non-Catholics have mantras. Catholics have antiphons, mm. meaning a phrase that is repeated that aids our sanctity would be an antiphon. A phrase that is repeated that draws us away from san- sanctity would be a mantra. And so the mantra, I didn't know. They're exactly right because there is an absence of common sense. There is an absolute absence of not only practical common sense, but theological common sense because we do not know God. We've spent all of this time getting to know creature inside and out to the exclusion of understanding creator. And so at this point, I want to make a shameless plug for the Libra Cristo Annual Conference because it is virtual this year. No bishop's letter is required. It is open to all who would like to listen to uh, the speakers at the virtual conference. There is some interactive platform. Uh, It's a tremendous lineup. So go to www.libercristo.org and register for that annual summer conference. And And when is that, Kyle? It's coming up the last week in July. Um, but full details are the keynote speaker will be uh, Father uh, Ripperger, who will speak each morning. And then in the afternoons, they have tracks that they uh, you did professional track, priest track, lay track, different levels of laity. But it's quite informative and, and um, it'll, it'll help you understand this whole discussion of how the demon is, is waging war 
and through the inversion. So what he's doing is he's, he's not challenging the concepts here of the spiritual works of mercy or the corporal works of mercy. What he's doing is very, very subtle. And so let's look at what he's doing. The corporal works of mercy, feeding, clothing, um, these things, these are often cited immediately by those who propose them. Jesus speaks of them and he says that you do have a duty to your fellow man. But he has always emphasized, and I'll back this up with some scriptural reference, but he's always emphasized the primacy of the spiritual works. And to quote St. Paul, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? And so this is also the understanding in Thomistic theology and one of the reasons that I'm quoting St. Thomas very simply is he is a doctor of the church. He is the preeminent theologian of the Catholic Church and defines doctrine and dogma. He settles and answers questions. We need to understand that questions have been settled and answered in the Catholic faith. We do well to adhere to that. Because if we depart that and we start modern churchmen are wanting to redefine doctrine and dogma, it's been defined by a doctor of the church. It's been codified. It is what it is. We have to let things stay settled. Because if we don't, then the demon can take us anywhere. Things have to stay settled. And so in that, what St. Thomas is talking about is he says he differentiates between good works and meritorious works. A good work is a, is a work that benefits a merit, uh, temporally. A meritorious work benefits spiritually. And here's the classic example. Angela, if I call you and I say, get a camera crew, we're going to go down to... Um, the homeless section of Chicago, I've made a sack of sandwiches. I'm going to feed the homeless, and we want to uh, catch this on camera. Trick question alert. Is that a good work? If I go and feed the homeless and you catch it on camera and we put it on TV, is that a good work? It is. Excellent. It is a good work because they were fed. Is it a meritorious work? Not for you. Correct. It is not. And only for them if their response is, thanks be to God. If, if it's thanks be to God, then it's meritorious because it opens them up to grace, to find grace. And so this understanding that the spiritual works have to open us up to sanctifying grace, the corporal works, the idea that you got to feed somebody before they can hear the gospel is exactly counter to Scripture. This is a, a actually an abomination of, of St. Francis' message. Um, and so done in the name of Francis is this movement within the church that, that elevates the corporal works over the spiritual works, which says you feed the hungry, you clothe, you, you give drink to the thirsty, that list. Jesus himself gave us clear understanding of this in two places in the scripture, three places in the scripture. First place, he calls Philip, the apostle Philip. Philip, he says, come follow me. And the discourse about, I will make you fishers of men. I will, you will 
my word will be spread through you. And so he's offering Philip this spreading of the message to instruct the ignorant. The Messiah is come. That is the gospel message. That is what's happening is that God come among us. The word became flesh. It, it, that is the proclamation that begins uh, addressing the first spiritual work of mercy, instructing the ignorant. When he says this to Philip, Philip's response is, let me go bury my father. You remember very. this is the seventh corporal work of mercy. So he's saying, let me go bury my father, which is the, the seventh corporal work of mercy. Jesus' response, let the dead bury the dead. How cold does that sound? How cold does that sound? But he's very, very clear. It is more important to instruct the living than to bury the dead. It's more in, important to address the soul than it is the flesh. When you hear it that way, then you understand very clearly that our USCCB is totally disordered in this because they've elevated the corporal works of mercy above the spiritual works of mercy. When you have a prelate who tells you that his primary obligation as your Cardinal Archbishop is your health and safety, he's 180 out. But he is stating the new modernist relativist political statement that is among the episcopate and the hierarchy. This leads us and opens us to the one world government, the reunification of church and state in an abominated sense, um, it, wherein the, the, the state becomes the church and the, the church as we know it simply is a, is a vehicle to draw people into state worship. State worship meaning the state addresses your temporal needs. So you start to see the inversion, and when we see it this way, then we can we can parse out statements that, that are being made, and we can say, wait a minute, this is an inversion. This, this places someone's health, their physical health, over their spiritual health. We see this has pervaded healing, the ministry of healing in the Catholic Church when the definition of healing for them is the cessation of physical suffering or the curing of infirmity. This has never been the definition of healing. The definition of healing has always been reconciliation with God the Father, is the understanding that what none of us get out of alive. Suffering is one of the wages of sin. Suffering and death are a result of sin. Now we circle back to the generational sin argument. None of us get out of here alive. Why, does, why do we not? Why do I have to die? I have to die because that is a function of, it is a, um, it is a thing that is visited on humanity as a result of original sin. When we depart this very basic teaching and focus on the corporal works of mercy, we cease to be rightly formed Catholics. We absolutely are giving up the high ground of our faith. Catholicism is what Judaism looks like if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. What do I mean by that? Our liturgy is Jewish liturgy. Our faith is Jewish faith. It is, they hoped in the Messiah. We have the realization of the Messiah. But it is a continuation. God does not pick us 
we pick God, we choose God, and then through baptism, we offer ourselves or our children to God to be his presence, his conscience, his working agent through the church on earth. And so Catholicism is supposed to be the conscience of the culture. It's supposed to be God present among fellow men. And we, we should be recognizable by our charity but it's Christian charity that places love of soul, love of God is based upon love of neighbor for love of God. And you can't love your neighbor if you feed him and don't evangelize him. You're, you're, this is an act uh, right against charity. And it, it places the comfort of the creature above his salvation. One of the things you look at in a microcosm is let's look at how a saint did this. Let's look at how a saint did this. Let's look, the scene is Martin de Porres, the, the, it's Martin de Porres on the docks and, and mud and slop of Cartagena as they're unloading slaves off of the slave ship. They are piling those slaves which are more abound. There are men who are sorting slaves saying, these will not live and they're casting them aside. It is to these that Martin de Porres is ministering. He baptizes them. He makes it a point to baptize them and to understand that whatever temporal comfort they may get in these few moments is secondary to the salvation which will ensure to the, the baptism which will ensure the salvation of their souls. We've got to be refocused on the salvation of souls. There's a very subtle thing going when you add, how presumptuous is it to add to the litany of Loretto? How presumptuous is it to add to these things which have stood for centuries and to say, now I or we have this enlightenment that shows this incompleteness. And it's very subtle. The last salutation gives her a name that she's never had that she's never had as patroness of immigrants. Go ahead. Yeah. This, this is exactly what I'm talking about. All As you go through the litany and it's ranked, you go through the litany, all of these titles have to do with salvation. Salvation. Until you get to these new ones, which now have to do with corporal works. So, spiritual works of mercy over the corporal works. Again, our Lord speaking to Philip. It's at the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't feed them first. He evangelizes them first. He gives them the Beatitudes, how to, re, how to be God's presence to each other. And the Beatitudes are ordered. The Beatitudes are ordered and, and ranked. But as you get through them, then at the end of the day, he says to Philip, uh, he asks Philip a spiritual question. Philip gives him a temporal answer. The spiritual question he asks is, how do we feed these people? The answer is, you've fed them, Lord, spiritually. Philip answers in, a, in an accountant's language. 300 days wages would not feed these people. And then our Lord multiplies and shows the miracle. But again, it's the spiritual works of mercy having primacy over the corporal works of mercy. We must address in the primacy the soul and in the, in the secundacy or the secondary um, the corporal works of mercy, the difference between a good work and a meritorious work. You know, Kyle, I just want to jump in a second because the way, pr from a practical level, 
it's implemented, say, for example, in the United States is by getting things out of order, like the corporal acts of mercy first and then the spiritual, you can't, you're blocked from doing the spiritual works of mercy. Not only are they not done, they can't be done at all because, for example, that first spiritual act of mercy, legally, there's so many impediments to really, at this point, being even able to teach the faith if you're putting the corporal act of mercy first. Do, do you agree with that statement? Oh, absolutely. Our focus on the corporal act does exactly what you're saying, is it is it systematically shuts off the flow of grace. Grace will flow through the spiritual works. The corporal works may help dispose one, but the grace flows through the spiritual works. Again, good versus meritorious. Um, and so the other thing about focusing on the corporal works is it puts the focus on the creature, not the creator. And I think that is the next particular area that we really want to go into is this we have systematically seen our church become more concerned with the creature than it is with the creator when you look at the titles of the that they they give themselves within the rogue organization which is the usccb acting under political uh emphasis there they act like politicians um Politics was never a charge of apostolic life, of, of episcopal life. And so we've, we've departed, our, our shepherds are lost in this howling wasteland of relativism and modernism, which places the creature over the creator. And one of, it's been systematically done, and I, I think that the elevation of the corporal works, it's been systematically done over a generation. Um, and, and largely, you lay a lot of this at the feet of Vatican II and what people did with Vatican II. And I don't want this to be a, um, I don't want this to be a referendum on Vatican II. That's not where where I'm going with this. You simply look up and say, okay, here we are. How do we get out of this? Or how do we how do we wring the most amount of grace from our particular situation? And so. I think that it's important to realize that the martyrs have, and talk of the martyrs, talk of heroic virtue, talk of sacrifice, elevation of the understanding of what it is to be in a functional sacrificial vocation. That's and the blurring of lines through the charismatic renewal and other activities that have blurred the lines between laity and priesthood, men and women, right roles. So when all of this gets blurred and the martyrs disappear from our discourse and our, our language and our prayer, the martyrology has been systematically removed. Our priests are not, no longer reading the martyrology in the, in the uh, divine office. Lay people are no longer reading the martyrology. The calendar has been redone. Why am I focusing on the martyrology? The martyrology is the example, primary example of suffering with merit and right ordering of the faculties. Because it, what the martyr does is not only embrace death, he welcomes it, he welcomes the opportunity to die in defense of the faith or in testimony to the faith. This is exactly countered to the lower faculties which focus on preservation of corpus. And so the preservation of self, the martyr has not only suppressed but rightly ordered that lower faculty, that instinctual faculty, 
to give glory to God. That's done in the intellect and the will. That is done in the intellect and the will. The primary inversion that happens or the, the, the main disorder that happens and is happening right now that is indicative of the insanity of our society and of humanity generally is that we no longer think we feel we we have an emotion which is a much lower faculty than the intellect and the will but we go where our emotions lead us that if you don't believe me turn on the television and look at where disordered emotion is leading all of these individuals a soul is inside every one of those people who is raging and people ask, well, on the riots, is that diabolical manifestation? That is not diabolical manifestation. That is humanity without virtue. It's humanity without understanding of charity. It is humanity that is degraded through its own practices. The demon is exterior cheering them on, but those people aren't possessed. They are human. That is what humanity looks like. That is what pagan humanity looks like. That is what humanity looks like that hates and does not love. That is what a godless society looks like. And the demon doesn't have to go to the length of possessing. He drives them like sheep from a great distance through their own disorder, through their own insanity, which means their emotion, their memory, rules, and these disordered faculties they are they begin they become animalistic because they can't access the rational quality they can't access the intellect and will the law the more they work out of their memory and emotion especially fueled emotion um, and the perceived injustice and essentially what they're doing is faulting God either by uh, absolutely rejecting him and saying he doesn't exist or work saying not only does he exist, he's ineffective, he's vengeful, uh, he hates a certain race or a certain people, but that's, you're looking at disordered humanity. I've seen, in solemn session, I have seen the demon manifest in humans. That's not what it looks like. That's, humana that's humanity. You, we will see um, films of people, they'll send them to us, of, of high-pitched keening, uh, screaming, um, inability, what seems like an inability to control bodily function and this out of control behavior by homosexuals and others in response to just an image of somebody and they say well that's that's diabolical manifestation. It's not diabolical manifestation. That's what a temper tantrum looks like in an undisciplined person if they've not received discipline or learned how to moderate emotion, if they've not received correction and not learned how to moderate their faculties, that's what that looks like. The demon's not present to that. He doesn't have to be present to that. Humanity is capable of much greater cruelty than the demon. I think we need to get that through our head. And so when we reject the martyrs and when we reject those who, who practice heroic virtue, um, are we celebrating the rare 50-year marriages among us? Are we celebrating uh, ordinations? Are we celebrating religious? No. We talk about having days off. I'll tell you, one of the one of the stinking things, one of the things that really has a spiritual malodor is the priest in, in civilian clothes. 
it's you you can't do that fatherhood is fatherhood a father is a father meaning you have souls in your care and there's not a day off there's no such thing as a day off there's no such thing as me time you are in a sacrificial vocation and so again this is that suppression of the martyrs suppression of heroic virtue the suppression of the stories of our faith that give a full and deep understanding of what it is to be Catholic, to what, what it is to be a saint, what it is to desire everlasting life with God the Father, ultimately to the exclusion of all else. But in that, you become a conduit of grace. And it is all about number one. You've got to look out for number one. You've got to look out for he who is the greatest, and that is God the Father. That's the inversion. You ask the disordered person who is number one, they will say me. You ask the ordered person who is number one, they will say God. At the end of the day, it comes back to the fiat, the response to God the Father. The perfect fiat, the perfect fiat is given by the perfect creature, the Blessed Mother. She who was conceived without sin. The Blessed Mother. And her statement to God is, be it done unto me according to thy word. Juxtapose this, contrast this with Lucifer's statement, which is the statement of humanity in general today, which is, be it done unto me according to my word. Be it done unto me according to my way. That's the difference between ad orientum and ad hominem. Ad orientum, focused on God, focused on the Son, focused on Christ the Son, focused on the Trinitarian God versus ad hominem or ad populum, which is focused on the people. Inference intended with regard to the mass. Inference intended with regard to what has happened to liturgy. The liturgy is a mirror of our interior, and our interior as a church is focused on the creature, not the creator. Kelly, I just want to go back a little bit and segue to our third topic, if I may. Sure. So, okay, so we know there's a divine plan. And then um, with reference to the people that we see on television and as, as individuals, you're saying there's not obviously demonic infestation. It's just, as you said, evil militates towards insanity. And, and we see that happening. But is it possible in opposition to that divine plan that there are demonic plans that these people are simply being tools of, such as some of the enemies of the church, like for example, communism or Freemasonry. And that brings us into the third topic, which yes. is the institutional elements. Yes. <clears throat> then you see the diabolical is not focused on the individual. He's focused on the movement. Right. He's fo focused on the, end, on, the, uh, on the institution or the growing institution. And it is used to demoralize and to um, deconstruct the structures of sacrament, the structures of faith, and so these individuals are being used as animals. Um, and so their fallen nature is being driven uh, by the diabolical. But now you're, you're looking at spiritual warfare in a whole different area. Now you're looking at institutional or cosmic spiritual warfare that is fought by the higher choirs, those, those bigger and more powerful angels that aren't necessarily in, interested in us individually. So let's go back. You, you threw two things up divine plans and diabolical plans. Let's talk about those because they're very, very, very clear, extremely clear. 
understand that the angels were created mission specific and all angels were created to serve creation to serve God by serving creation and so to understand that so each one of them had a specific obligation job purpose mission whatever word you want to use it's part of their nature within the cosmos to give glory to God by serving his creation he's manifest in creation so the unseen God becomes seen through the word he speaks and it is and so the first concentric circle of creation out are these creatures that are intellect and will and that's the angels so when a demon falls when an angel fell and became a demon he retained his mission because his mission is part of his nature so his focus on this particular area remains so a demon of purity that is to ensure purity now becomes a demon of perversion an angel of purity becomes a demon of perversion so an angel of right governance now becomes an angel a demon of anarchy and so that's what we're seeing and when governments stop praying asking angelic assistance those angels stop assisting because they will only go where they're invited they will only go where they're invited. How long has it been since we have had a praying president who truly prayed? And the atmosphere changes, and the human atmosphere changes because the diabolical will go where they are not resisted. So having seen that, what is the divine plan? We project this as part of the corporal downfall, the corporal works of mercy elevated is modernly the protestants the protestants and others especially those in in charismatic circles who are down in the lower faculties want to project upon god anthropomorphic characteristics meaning god wants god desires god is uh, frustrated god is angry god is happy god is none of those things god wills god wills that's what god does god wills God the Father, God the Creator wills. He speaks and that's His Son. So we've got to go back to a straight understanding of Trinitarian theology. God wills. What does He will? Union, right order, creation. The first attribute of the unseen God is order. He brings cosmos out of chaos, order out of disorder. And so this disorder, this anarchy, is militation directly against God's, your word, divine plan. But the plan, the will, is order, union, salvation, re reconciliation between creature and creator. That is his will. That is his plan. The diabolical plan is everything against that. The angelic plan is everything that augments or aids in that. The diabolical plan is everything against that. And so that's that's the strategy. The tactics vary, uh, but the overarching strategy is that simple. And so it's very easy to, quote, discern, and we need to reclaim that word uh, back from those circles and groups that misuse it. Back to Ignatian principles, a saint. What Ignatius said is discernment is the ability to tell clean from unclean. And then he goes on to say that which is clean augments, repairs, 
strengthens my relationship with God. That which is unclean diminishes, destroys, discolors, disorders my relationship with God. So discernment is clean or unclean. Does this aid in my salvation? Does this militate against my salvation? So when I say, I'm discerning whether to buy the blue Toyota or the white Toyota, it's a misuse of the word. God could care. There's, there's no concern with what those things. Should I take this job? Should I not take this job? It has more money. We get caught up in the temporal constructs. That's not discernment. Discernment is very simply, is this ad orientum? Is this ad hominem? Does this take me closer to, to God? Does this take me further away? There's no such thing as a lateral movement. Every single thing we do takes us closer to or further from God. This is the right ordering and understanding of the life of the Catholic, the life of the martyr, the life of the saint. What we're wanting to do modernly is be able to call ourselves Catholic to have this little thing on our resume, this little thing so we can feel good about ourselves. But are you willing to die for our Lord? More importantly, are you willing to be humiliated for him? Are you willing to put on the sackcloth and ashes, hierarchy, bishops, holy father? Are you willing to put on the sackcloth and ashes that is necessary to lead this flock back out of this howling wasteland of relativism and modernism? What will militate against you? Freemasonry other constructs that are formalized that militate against the sovereignty of God. They militate for one world government. They place it to, uh, at a primacy, concerns for the environment versus the eternal soul of man. You can start to see this. You break it down and very, very simply. Is this leading us closer to God or further from God? Is this a spiritual work or a corporal work? How am I reacting to this? Are my emotions rightly ordered here? Is my intellect functioning? Is my will subjected to my intellect? And then all the faculties that flow from it. Well, I'm thinking a little bit of also of communism when, when Bella Dodd had mentioned years ago that there was a systematic plan to infiltrate the Catholic Church from the inside by placing... Um, people in in the seminary and um, and that they would rise to positions of power. Explain a little bit why the communistic philosophy I don't know if it's a philosophy runs counter to what you were talking about the spiritual acts of mercy and the Catholic faith. Okay, um, So let's go back and pick up a little bit of history. Uh, the Bolshevik revolution, every revolution was a Masonic, Freemasonic construct, including our revolution, which we will celebrate uh, tomorrow, a declaration of independence from a sovereign who had been, this whole thing. I'll, I'll make a couple of comments. I think this is something that we want to revisit, but one of the comments that I really wanted to, to put out there was this. How could the founders of this country think for a moment, think for a moment, that their veneration would continue when they themselves militated against right-ordered leadership. They rebelled. Their statues are now being pulled down. History is being rewritten. This is what the Freemasons do, is constantly rewrite, pull down heroes, degrade especially patriarchal figures, 
throughout the ages, that has been what they do, is they, they erode the moorings of society. And so the Bolshevik Revolution started with the satanic sacrifice of the rightly coronated Tsar and his family. It was a satanic sacrifice, it was nothing less, of Alexander and his family. Um, the, the, um, the Romanov virgins, five offered on a, on a midnight, we can go through that, but that's Freemasonry free unbridled. The world reacted to the Bolshevik Revolution and especially their uh, destruction of the Catholic Church in Russia, the, the, the world recoiled. And that was one of the reasons that communism started out with um, a disdain. And the Bolshevik Revolution had such uh, negative connotation. And so, again, the learning curve of the demon they should have spent the time destroying the church from within, weakening the church, because I'll give you a classic example. Right now, there's a large number of Catholics that if the if the national government said we're outlawing all churches, they'd say, well, we had it coming. We deserved it because look at the, the filth, the rot um, that is within the church. And so they the communist agenda now they shifted to KGB, they shifted to propaganda, they shifted to all the psychological elements of warfare, and they systematically demoralized this country. Um, where we are right now is largely a result of the demoralization. They fueled and, and, and uh, fostered the sexual revolution. They were very active in Vatican II, but in 40s and 50s, they started to place homosexuals and deviant theologians in the seminaries, understanding that if they fostered and promoted the fallen nature of man, we will always, not always, it takes heroic virtue. Again, you have to take the martyrs, but they took out the martyrs, they took out their strenuous liturgy, they started militating for an effeminate response. And this is one of the things that is that runs throughout the thing is an effeminate response. And so you place damaged individuals, individuals from broken homes, individuals with carnal knowledge of a woman, individuals with homosexual tendencies, you place them in positions of power and whether they understand it or not, these impurities come through in their teaching, in their in their understanding of theology, and in their deformation of seminarians. Angela you know this to be true. Every person listening to this show knows a good young man, a straight young man who had the call to the priesthood, the seminary, the homosexuals, and the heretics forced him out of the seminary. All of us know him because it's killing the priesthood. It's killing the church. Those who either promote homosexuality or those who allow it or those who foster and insist that it is a normalcy. It's a deviancy that will, at some point, limit the priesthood either by regulation and or formation. We see it already, those in positions of power. You cannot any longer justify a Father James Martin and bishops who have erotic paintings behind their altar. All of this is known. This is, this is common knowledge. We can no longer, as laity, stand by and allow it to happen. Quoting Archbishop Fulton Sheen, whose beatification is being delayed by the very homosexuals in the priesthood that he warned against, to quote him, 
the preservation of the faith has always been the obligation, responsibility, and duty of the laity. That's what the call is. We need a Judas Maccabeus to step forward. We need somebody to step forward and say, we must preserve our faith, not by violence, but we have to, as lay people, preserve our faith. We absolutely have to preserve it. How else will the Lord will the Lord preserve the church? Historically, this has happened. Gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, who defended? Who steps forward? The little angel, Saint Michael, quiesut Deus. Who can compare to God? His cry is just as important now as it was then. We must ask our prelates, who can compare to God? When you talk about the environment, who can compare? to God. When you talk about having to feed the poor, the cry of the poor must cease. Who can compare God? We must have the words of St. Michael's on our lips. That is the sword. That is the absolute truth that will banish the demon from the church and from wherever he may be. In the same way that that statement, St. Michael's sword, quiesut Deus, who can compare to God? That statement banishes Lucifer from heaven, becomes apostate and says, I will not serve. Well, Kyle, that's all the time we have left for this month. Uh, before we close, maybe just tell our listeners one more time how they can sign up for your conference. Thank you, Angela. Go to LibreCristo.org, www.librecristo.org. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. God bless you, and we'll talk to you soon. Talk to you next month, first, first Friday in August. Listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, Reclamation Theology. A copy of this broadcast will be made available at WSFI Catholic Radio.org.